Hey, we're in the middle of this series, actually not in the middle, we just started a week ago, so we have a few weeks to go, um, called Believe. And uh, just real quickly, I just want to, uh, for the first few weeks, I'm going to remind us a few of the things that we talked about, because I think they're really important. We're in this series called Believe, um, and we're talking about what we believe about God, what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about the Holy Spirit, what we believe about the church, what we believe about this world. The reason why we believe is so important what we believe is so important is because what we believe determines what we do. It's just simple truth. That what we believe comes out in our actions. It comes out in the way we treat people. It comes out in, in, in our faith. It comes out in the way we daily live our lives. And the way that we live our lives influences who we're going to become. And so if what we believe be- it leads up to who we become. It's it's really important to know what we believe and why we believe it, right? I feel like I'm saying believe a whole lot. <laughs> believe, 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 believe. You're going to hear that a lot today. You're going to believe that. You're going to hear that a lot today. But there's two things that that you have to remember that I shared last week that I think is the the essence that that, that we can't go any further until we settle on these first two things. And the first thing is this: is that we have to believe that you can change. You have to believe that. If you don't believe you can change, then what are we doing living? (laughs) If we think, you know, the old saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. I mean, if we really believe that, then you might as well put down that dog. Because there's there's no reason to keep living. Ah, that's sad, isn't it? Don't put down dogs. Don't put down dogs. But the truth is, Sarah's lip went like this as soon as I said that. Dogs put it down. Well, we believe, you have to believe that you can change. In 1985, the greatest movie ever made came out in the movie theaters. And it's a scientific fact. It is the greatest movie ever made. Does anybody know what movie came out, the greatest movie ever made? You were in the first service. That's not fair. 1985, the greatest movie ever made. Get out of town. Not even close. The greatest movie ever made, scientific fact, in 1985 was Rocky IV. It's the greatest movie ever made. It's science. It's science. You can't, you can't argue with science. You can't argue with science. But in Rocky IV, how many of you remember Rocky IV? Rocky IV is when Rocky goes up to, you know, puts up the Dukes against the Russian, right? Ivan Drago. The beginning of the movie, Rocky's acting as a corner man for his buddy, Apollo Creed, and he's fighting Ivan Drago, and Ivan Drago just beats him down and actually kills him in the ring, right? And and so, yeah, you, you've never seen it? If you haven't seen it, I'm ruining the movie for you, but because I'm, I'm going to tell you how it ends right now. And so Rocky says, hey, we're, gonna, we're going down because you... You fought my friend, and, he, and Ivan Drago's like, I want you, I want you. And so Rocky's like, bring it. So he, he flies to Russia, and he starts training for a fight against Ivan Drago. I think it was on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. I don't remember which one it is. It's one of the two. And so he's out there, and he's, you know, he's pulling sled, sleds through, like, and trucks through, like, 10 feet of snow. And he's, like, bench-pressing trees, you know, because he's getting back to his roots. And, you know, he's, like, doing crunches upside down. Oh, I, I see what I did there. Bench-pressing trees because he's getting back to his roots. I, that budding thing, I didn't even notice I did that. That's funny. That's, I'm a comedian. I didn't even know it. And so at the end of the movie, the big fight comes, right? And you know, every Rocky movie is basically the same. 
but this is the greatest movie ever made because he's fighting Ivan Drago and for like eight rounds, he's just getting pummeled, right? He's flying across the ring and Ivan Drago is like, looks like he's eight foot tall. And so whenever Rocky punches him, he has to do like a super jump punch, you know, to get to his face. And, and, and so for like eight rounds, he's just getting beat up and the Russians are just killing, just, just booing Rocky every turn. I mean, it's like the end of the Cold War, you know, and so, Russia and Americans hate each other. But as the, as the, as the, the fight goes on, the Russians begin to cheer for Rocky over their own Ivan Drago. You remember this? And, and, you know, every time, you've never seen a movie, Sarah, so you wouldn't remember this. You lived a sheltered life, sister. I'm just kidding. And so he's like, do it. And so they they start cheering for him and, and, uh, and, and at the end of the movie, you know, he's been beat up for like 10 rounds. He wins. He like knocks out Ivan Drago. He's on the ground. They do the 10 count. And all of a sudden the crowd just like erupts in this crazy cheer for, for the American Rocky. And he does this amazing speech, right? If you remember the speech, it gave me chill bumps when I watched it the first time. Anytime I watch it, I get chill bumps. Because at the end of the speech, he has this microphone and there's a Russian interpreter next to him and he goes, and if I can change, and the Russian interpreter, you know, says it, and I can't speak Russian, so I won't even try. He says, and if you can change, and the Russian says it, the crowd is like, ah. Then he says, and we all can change. And, and everybody just erupts in this huge applause and it's like, you know, the people that hated him are now celebrating this foreigner who's winning the match. That's true. We can change. And you have to believe that. Not only do you have to believe that we can change, but we have to believe that it's okay to doubt. So one of the things that we think that if we doubt something, then there has to be something wrong with us. But the truth is, is that, is that our doubt, our doubt can lead us to a closer relationship with Jesus. Because Jesus said this, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so when we start discovering more and more truth, who are we discovering? Jesus. We're discovering God. You know, I've been um, a follower of Jesus since seventh grade. So, you know, 26, 30 years, something like that. I don't know. Long time. And there, even as a pastor, Jesus, where there have been certain things that I've doubted. Um, but, I, but I never allow my doubt to push me away from God. I ask it to push me towards him. And when I doubt something, I get into his word. And I say, okay, God, show me your truth. When I doubt something, I pray. And I say, okay, God, I'm struggling with this. Help me, help me to see this through your eyes. And so I allow it to push me towards him, not away from him. What do you believe? What do you believe about Jesus? Have you ever seen the show Undercover Boss? Undercover Boss used to be on regular TV, but now I think it's mostly on cable. Undercover Boss is a large president or owner of a corporation will go into one of his branches across the country, and he'll just he'll he'll he usually dresses up in a disguise, or she dresses up in a disguise, so her employees or his employees can't recognize them. And then he starts just doing the jobs next to you know his coworkers, and so he sees what it's like to be a waiter or to cut hair, or to, um, you know, buy and sell things, or to run a store. And, 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 and while he's there, he starts asking other employees, you know, what do you think about this, how this company's ran? And he starts seeing from a different perspective how his company is ran. 
It's kind of a cool thought. Because that's what God did for us. God came and became one of us. And lived among us in the person of Jesus. John chapter 1, 10 through 14. This is what John writes. He says, He came into the very world He created, but the world didn't recognize Him. The person He is talking about, God, Jesus. He came to His own people, and even they rejected Him. But to all who believed Him and accepted Him, He gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The scripture says, if you want to see God, you look at the person of Jesus. He is God in flesh. So what do we believe about Jesus? There's just three things I want you to walk away with this morning. There's a lot of things that we need to believe about Jesus, but here's just three. The first thing is this. Is I want you to believe that Jesus came so that we might finally see what God is like. For centuries followers of God didn't really have a clear picture of what God was like. If you look through the Old Testament, what did they see about God? They saw instances where God showed up. They saw Him in mystery. They saw Him as a cloud that that, that overcame a mountain as as Moses was there getting the commandments and meeting with God. They they saw God as as a a bolt of fire from heaven as it it burnt up the, 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 the altar in front of Elijah. They saw God in a, in a, pow, in a, in a pillar of fire and in a pillar of clouds as they left Egypt. They, say, they saw God in His power as He parted the Red Sea. They saw God as, as, he, as he stopped the rotation of the earth so that jo- Joshua could win a battle you know, in, 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 in the Old Testament. I mean, they saw God in all these ways, but they never got a clear picture of what he looked like. Even more so, for the last 400 years, in, in the, in, when Malachi was written, the last book of the Old Testament, to when Jesus is born in, in Matthew, um, there are 400 years of silence where the people of God, the priests of God, the leaders of God, had no prophecies and no visions and, and no spoken word from our Father in Heaven. They, they had it a very incomplete view of who God was. For some, he was intimidating, fearful. And for some of us, when we think about God, he can be intimidating and fearful. Like Clint Eastwood, you know, and I think the first service told me it's Dirty Harry, you know, go ahead and make my day. You know, we see God as this, as this, this man that's just waiting to make my day. He's not inviting. And He's not loving. But listen to what Paul writes in Colossians 1.15. Paul writes this. He says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. 
Paul is saying if you want to get a picture of what God is like, you look at Jesus. Because he is God in flesh. Jesus said it himself in John 14, 9. He says, anyone who has seen me has seen the who? Father. When you look at me, you're looking at God. And his followers and the people were blown away by this statement. And so when we look at Jesus and we see him as a liberator, that's who God is. He's a liberator. When we see Jesus healing the blind and making the lame walk and the, and the, and the, and the, and the, the blind see, when, when we see Jesus you know, touching lepers who are, who are considered ceremoniously unclean and not just healing them of a skin disease, but healing their broken hearts, when we see that, we see God in the flesh. That is what God is like. If you ever wonder, what's God like? You find him in Jesus. See, I want you to believe this morning that Jesus came so that we can finally see what God is like. He says, you know what? The mystery is over. You've seen the Father and you've seen me. Here's a second thought. Is it, what I want you to believe is that Jesus came to take the guesswork out of what God wants for us. He's come to take the guesswork out of what God wants for us. When I was graduating college, I literally thought that God really wanted to make my life difficult. <laughs> I did. I don't know if you've ever felt that way before. I was like, God, are you just trying to make my life hard? When I, when I went to college to get a degree in specialized ministry, and I knew that one day I was going to be a pastor, you know, as I was graduating, I was, this was my last semester, and I vividly remember sitting in my dorm room and having a conversation with God in prayer and just saying, Jesus, look, listen, I don't know what plans you have for me, but I hope they don't involve Canada. Now, the only reason I said that was because I thought at the time that Canada was just snowy and cold, and I'm a Texas boy, and the last place I want to live is in a place full of snow and cold all the time. Now, now as an adult, I was like, hey, I've lived in Arizona for a few years. Give me Canada sometimes, please. It is way wicked hot here, you know? And I said, God, you know, I know you're probably going to send me to Africa because that's just how you do things. You take pastors and you send them to Africa. And God, I really, and then I, I literally said, okay, God, this is what I need from you. If you could keep me anywhere, I don't want to go further west than Texas, you know, because I lived in Dallas. And I don't want to go anywhere further north than Oklahoma because I'm a southern boy. And I don't know about those northerners. And, you know, and I don't want to go further east than Louisiana. Can God, so God, you got two or three states you can work with. What you going to do? And I would prefer to live in the city. And so God sent me to Donovan, Missouri, which has like 1,200 people in it, in the middle of the Mark Twain National Forest, and then eventually sent me to Arizona. And I thought, God, that's just how you work. You just try to make us miserable. But that's not what God wants for us. God's goal is not to make your life miserable and to make it hard for you. Now, sometimes we think that's his goal, but it's not. This may come as new to some of you, but can I just tell you this morning that God loves you and that he wants to bring fulfillment and satisfaction to your life. In Jeremiah, in the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah wrote it this way. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. 
You want to know what God's goal is for your life? It's good. It's hopeful. That's God's desire. Jesus, God in flesh, put it this way. He says the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. But my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfied life. And the NIV says to give you life and more abundant to the fullest. Isn't that what we want? A rich and satisfying life? I mean, if you think about it, isn't that what you want? I mean, I want, I'm not rich as in, you know, cha-ching, but, but to be full of life and for it to be satisfying, that's what we all want, right? And what I want to share with you this morning is that well, that's what Jesus brings. That's what Jesus brings. And until you know Jesus, you will never experience and find the fulfillment that he has for you. You'll never find it. And until he fully occupies your life, you won't know purpose, and you won't know meaning, no matter what you do. It's impossible. Without him being Lord and Savior. Even, even when he has to bring correction to your life. Have you ever had one of those moments where you felt that nudge or that smack from God? And you're just like, ugh, that's done, that hurt. Why would, why would God do that? Is it because he just he's like like a like a bully and he just wants to like put the pressure on us from time to time to condemn us? No. He does it because he wants what's best for you. Oh, sorry. He wants what's best for you. In Florida, a guy by the name of Joseph Webb um, was driving with a suspended license, and. Um, Officer Boyd was um, driving across from him and um, noticed it. And uh, he said, you know, I, I like Joseph. You know, I've, I've run into him a couple times, but deep down I feel like Joseph has a good heart. And, um, and so I, I, I just motioned to him to pull over because I wanted to say, hey, Joseph, I need you to go home because you shouldn't be driving. And um, he said, I wasn't going to give him a ticket. I wasn't going to, you know, make a deal out of this because I think he's a pretty good fella and uh, wanted to give him another chance. But Officer Boyd, when he motioned Joseph to pull over, Joseph freaked out and he took off in his car. And so they went on a high-speed chase. He's like, I couldn't just let him, you know, barrel down a street 100 miles an hour. And so I went after him. And the story says that Joseph jumped a curb, um, a median, and, as, and they, they, they followed him for miles. And eventually Joseph ran into a house. The thing is, it was his own house. Crashed, crashed into the front of his own home. And he jumped out of his car, and he went on, and they went on a foot pursuit, and they tackled him, and uh, handcuffed him in his own backyard. Um, his story says that as they were going through his car and his pockets, they found a small amount of marijuana and some cocaine. And and Officer Boyd just says, you know, what was strange about all this is that that's not what I wanted for Joseph. What I wanted for Joseph was just to go home. What I wanted for Joseph was just to not be driving with a suspended license. But because he ran, he made a bigger mess of things than what he had to. And now he's in prison. How many of us does that resemble? There's a few times in my life where I've felt that nudge from God. And instead of running towards him, I've ran from him. 
And the truth is, is that when I run from God, I usually make my life into a bigger mess than what it needs to be. Amen? And I just want to share with you this morning that eventually we're going to crash and burn when we go our own way. But Jesus came to remind us that He wants what's best for us. He loves you more than you'll ever know. Can you believe that today? Here's the third thing, and just this is this the last thing, is that Jesus came to make it possible for us to return to God. And I want you to believe that. The Bible says that when man sinned, we were separated from God. Paul says in Romans that when, that when Adam died, when he took a bite of that forbidden fruit, that it says in Genesis, that, that the tree from the knowledge of the fruit from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, that he died. And when he died, we all died. We all have sinned. And there was absolutely no way for us to make it right with God. And so God did what we couldn't do. He made it right for us through his son Jesus and his blood that was shed on that cross. Go back and look at John 1.12 in your notes on the front. Listen to what it says. John 1.12 says, But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. That's his desire for you and for me. Jesus came to make a way when we couldn't make it ourselves. Dr. Weinstein is a heart surgeon in the Bronx. Actually, the head of heart surgery at a hospital there, and I don't remember which one. It's irrelevant, but, but he does. Um, he is a part of an organization called um, um, Heart Care International. And what he does, him and a group of surgeons will travel to third world countries to um, to help them. And uh, and so they'll go to third world countries and and they'll gather surgeons around and, and they'll teach them like different techniques for heart surgery that they may not get in their third world country. And uh, while they're there, they'll also hold seminars on how to how to keep sterile surgical environments because, you know, in third world country, that's usually something that's very difficult for them to maintain. It's very sterile, um, you know, surgery environments. And, and while they're there, occasionally they'll perform heart surgeries that are more difficult that those doctors in those third world countries can't perform. And so Dr. Weinstein was in San Salvador, and uh, he was doing surgery on an eight-year-old boy by the name of Francisco Fernandez. And it was a really complica- complicated surgery because he was taking out um, the, 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 um, the aortic valve that was damaged in this boy's heart, and he was replacing it with the pulmonary valve in this boy's heart. And then they were taking an artificial valve and replacing it replacing the the pulmonary valve. Does that make sense? And it was a very, very complicated surgery that took hours upon hours. The story in the newspaper was talking about how they had been in surgery for over 11 hours. And after 11 hours, the boy was in a very critical condition. And, um, And so Dr. Weinstein looked at one of the nurses and says, you know, our patient needs more blood, um, or we may lose him here very, very soon. And the nurse came back to Dr. Weinstein and said, I'm, I'm sorry, sir, we don't have any more. He said, well, what do you mean you don't have any more blood? She said, well, the boy is a very rare um, blood type. He's B negative, and we've used all the B negative blood here in the hospital. I don't know what we should do. The article says that Dr. Weinstein just kind of pulled back for a second, and he said, I'm be negative. And so he worked on the patient for a few moments, and he put him in a stable state. 
And the story says that he went to the back of the room, and he sat in a chair, and he got the nurse to draw his own blood so that he could give it to the patient so that the boy could live. This is Dr. Weinstein here donating his blood. After he donated his blood, the story says that the doctor gave him two bottles of water and a Pop-Tart, and he went back to surgery, saving the boy's life. Now, that's a cool thing, right? That's a cool thing doctor would give a couple weeks out of his year, you know, to out of his own vacation time to go to a third world country to do a surgery. That's that's really cool. It's even it's even more wonderful that while he's there he'll train other doctors to do the things that he can't do because he lives in another place. That's even more wonderful. But you know what's amazing? What's amazing is a doctor who would be willing to give his own blood to save a child's life. You know, it's pretty cool when we think about that God came and walked among us. That's pretty cool, right? What's even more wonderful is that while God was here on this earth, that He showed love and grace and mercy, that He, that he healed a couple people, that He made a few lepers healed and a few blind people to see. I mean, that's, that's pretty wonderful. But you know what's amazing? is that the same God who came to earth and healed and loved and showed grace and mercy also gave His own blood so that we might know grace and know mercy. That's amazing. Colossians 1.19 says it this way, For God in all His fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through Him God reconciled everything to Himself. How did He do it? He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. And this includes you who are once far from God. And this includes you. And this includes you. And this includes you who were once far from God. God among us. Do you believe this morning? Do you believe that everything that you have ever wanted to know about God you can find in the person of Jesus? Sarah, you can come back. Do you believe that He loves you? And that He wants what's best for you? And, and when He brings correction to your life, it's not because He gets joy out of causing you pain, but it's truly because He wants what's good best for your life. Do you believe that He loved you so much personally that He personally, once and for all, made a way for you to be right with God through His Son Jesus, giving His life so that you shouldn't have to do yours?